Welcome to the Tide Run Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay, coming to you today from the Cybertron Studios to talk to you about a myriad of Georgia sports-related topics. First up will be the big win for UGA this past week over Auburn, as well as addressing a few other interesting scores from around the SEC and the nation. Then we'll pivot to the Atlanta Falcons Monday night football game and finally end with the Braves playoff win and their first game in the second round of the divisional series against the Florida Marlins. So to start with, the story of the weekend locally was really the dominant performance of the UGA football team against Auburn. Before I get into that game, I have to go ahead and go on a little bit of a rant. The college targeting rule sucks. I hate it. In every other level, the targeting rule does not result in an ejection. I hate that it does in college. Now, I understand in high school, one of the reasons they don't eject is because you cannot review the penalty. So if it looks like targeting and they call and you eject a kid, in high school, a lot of states have where an ejection means they miss the next game. And just I can see why you don't do an ejection in high school. In the NFL, you can hurt people in the wallet and just simply take their money away. And then if they're a repeat offender, you suspend them. But in college football, it's one inch penalty and then you're out for the game. And if it's in the second half of the game, you miss the first half of the next game, which again is stupid. I hate the targeting rule. I hated seeing Smoke Monday, one of the best players in the Auburn secondary, get ejected in the first quarter of the game. I hated seeing Richard the Count for Georgia, the best player in Georgia's secondary, get ejected from the game. And I have a simple, simple solution to fix the college targeting rule. Make it like an unsportsmanlike conduct. The first targeting penalty results in a 15-yard penalty. The second is a 15-yard penalty and an ejection. That way, if you get that sketchy call or that 50-50 bang-bang play that they can't reverse from replay, there's still a chance for that player. And that player knows, okay, going forward, I have to be careful with my contact. I have to keep my head up. I can't lead with my shoulder into the head and neck area. All those things are made possible if you make it where it's an unsportsmanlike penalty and the second one gets them ejected. It's a simple fix. Having said that, that kind of ruined the start of what I thought was going to be a very good and fun game. And if you were a UGA fan, it was. But the big story of the game was the domination of the Georgia Bulldogs on the line of scrimmage as they absolutely abused Auburn on both sides of the ball. Um, Georgia's O-line looks much, much better, vastly improved from the first week. They shuffled their lineup in. This right side of the line, which was problematic in the first week against Arkansas, looked way better. Heavy tight end use from Georgia, both in their blocking scheme, which they always do, and also in the passing game with Fitzpatrick getting a few targets early in the game. And and Stetson Bennett looked really comfortable throwing the ball to him. Stetson Bennett himself played outstanding. He was another story of the game, going 17 of 28 with 240 yards and one touchdown. Those numbers aren't eye-popping, and they also don't really tell the whole story of how good he was converting. I think he was something like 6 of 9 converting on third down. And the best word that I can use to describe Stetson Bennett's performance is efficient. He was just so efficient. He went to the right places with the ball. He escaped sacks. He was accurate. And there's no other way to describe him as just the coolest dude on the field. Just It seemed like nothing bothered him. He didn't get rattled. He didn't miss open throws. It just It's crazy to say that it's hard to see anybody else being a better option than him at quarterback right now. He has basically become our new Jake Fromm. And think back to Jake Fromm's freshman year where you never felt like he was doing anything all that special. But – 
he kept getting us first downs. We kept winning, so he kept rolling with him. I think that's what's got to happen here. You know, I've been asked this week, is Stetson Bennett just a placeholder until JT Daniels is a full speed go? My answer to that is, I don't think so, and here's why. Kirby Smart preaches competition. He is all about what do you do on the field. So if you're a five-star and you don't work or you don't get it done, he'll sit you behind on the bench. So then how can you turn around and watch someone like Stetson Bennett? He's done nothing but play extremely good football for the first two weeks of the season. You're going to turn around and say, yeah, this five-star kid who's got a lot better pedigree than you, we're going to go with him even though you've really done nothing to even remotely deserve losing this job. I just think that's going to be a hard sell to his team. So I think Bennett's the guy, and he was really good against Auburn. Now, playing Alabama in Tuscaloosa in two weeks, that's a different animal. But we'll get to that another time. So, as we said earlier, Georgia was dominating this game on both lines of scrimmage. Georgia rushed for 202 yards, led by Zamir White, who had 88 yards on 19 carries and two touchdowns. He was really good. And Auburn honestly tackled really well in this game. You kept feeling like White was just, at any given moment, going to break off one of those chunk plays and rip off a 30 or 40-yard run, and he just really couldn't. The UJ running game didn't hit any home runs, didn't even really hit any doubles or triples, but they probably hit about 20 singles. I mean, it was first down run, seven yards, first down run, six yards, first down run, seven yards, and Auburn just had no, Auburn had no answer. And when you look at the overall stats, I mean, Georgia put up 442 yards of offense on an Auburn defense that, you know, lost a lot of players, but one that people still expect to be pretty good. Uh, ran for 202 yards. It's just, it was a dominant performance. It was a butt whooping. And the final score, of course, was 27-6, with Auburn only managing two field goals, not even making it into the end zone. And the story for the night on the other side of the ball was Bo Nix under constant, constant pressure from the UG. Uh, from the UJ front. And just Bo Nix was literally catching the snap sometimes in a dead sprint at the snap. It looked like he was playing flag football. He finished tonight 21-40, 477 yards with one interception. And you almost feel for him because there was no chance for him to be successful with the amount of pressure he was facing. On the night, Auburn finished with 216 total yards on 79 plays. That is absurd. This is less than three yards a play. And this is an SEC football team that's not a Vandy. You know, this isn't an Arkansas who, you know, is actually way improved. This is a team that's supposed to be top 10, number seven team in the country. Like, you held them to 216 yards on 79 plays. They rushed for 39 yards on 22 carries. That's not supposed to happen in top 10 matchups. So, UJ absolutely dominated the game on both sides of the ball. And this defense is, as I said, as good as advertised. And just a couple of other observations from behind, the, looking a little deeper into what happened in the game. Uh, UJ used a lot of their heavier personnel on first and second down against Auburn and then would bring in Adam Anderson to rush the passer on third down, which he did a good job of. Needs to break down. He missed probably two sacks. I think he had, I think he had a sack or two and probably missed at least two more. But he finished the game with two sacks. Aziz Ojolari added another sack and Ojolari, by the way, is just an absolute monster. And you got really good play out of your corners with Tyson Campbell winning two or three one-on-one matchups against Seth Williams for Auburn. Ended up with a pass breakup. And what was interesting was that Eric Stokes played a lot less in this game. I'm not sure if he's still banged up. But they started DJ Daniel, who Auburn absolutely went after in the second and third quarters. And he didn't hold up great. Um, I think Stokes is a lot better player than D.D. Daniel, which makes me believe that 
Stokes is maybe on a pitch count because he's still nicked up. Because I can't imagine that you wouldn't be playing him full time. But Daniel played a lot. He was okay. But overall, the play in the secondary was good, even with the count going out. You had Chris Smith come in and fill in just fine. Uh, Lewis Seen was, I thought, really good. And there's just nothing but good things to say. I mean, the UJ do- defense dominated. It's it's pretty straightforward. But they were kind of helped by some of the stuff Auburn was doing. And I, I know Auburn's brought in a new OC, Kendall Browse, for a much more uh, passer-friendly attack. And, you know, you look up and every three or four plays, Auburn's an empty. Lots of empty. Why? You're Auburn. Why are you an empty? And I just <laughs> – I didn't really understand what Auburn was trying to do on offense. Um, they finally started to start. They finally decided to start forcing the ball to South Williams when DJ Daniel got matched up with him a few times, and they ended up getting Tyson Campbell matched up with him later on, and that ended up taking Seth Williams out of the game. And then he ended up getting banged up and missing, I think, most of the fourth quarter. But Auburn was really bad in the left side of the line of scrimmage. They had a hard time picking up UJ's blitzes from depth, and on the other side of the ball, on the other side of the line of scrimmage, UJ had a lot of success with split zone and counter. And I love seeing UJ run gap scheme plays, putting some diversity in the run game. It's one of the things that I ranted and raved about last year was how we needed to run plays other than inside zone. And uh, on offense, another thing, I know I'm kind of all over the place, such as I'm just kind of remembering several things from the game, stream of consciousness. Another big standout from the game was Kiaris Jackson, who had a career game with nine catches for 147 yards. I mean, by far the best performance he's ever had. He was one of the favorite targets for Stetson Bennett on third down, made several made several really nice catches. And George Pickens was quiet in this game, only had two catches for 26 yards, but he did catch a touchdown on a fade, and it was awesome. We looked over, we had a set where into the boundary, George Pickens had one-on-one coverage, and you can hear the commentator saying, you know, if I'm Stetson Bennett, I'm going to there with the ball. First play, we didn't throw the ball at him. They came back the next play, got the same set, and threw a fade route. Beautiful throw, Bennett drops in over the top, and, Pickens makes a catch in the end zone for a touchdown. So it's really good to see uh, Kiaris Jackson, someone besides George Pickens, catching passes and making plays. So the the overall trend from this game is that UJ kind of put the rest of college football on notice that their defense is as good as advertised and is already on its way to being one of the best defenses of all time. So Scott the Status Assassin shared this stat with me the other day. S&P Plus, if you're not familiar with it, is a great predictive stat for giving you an idea of just how well-rounded teams are all around. And S&P Plus for UJ's defense is number four in the last 30 years. So again, we talk about this being a historic defense. It really is a historic defense. So pivoting from UGA's decimation of Auburn to another top Five team that decimated their opponent. Um, if you didn't watch, Alabama absolutely slaughtered Texas A&M, uh, 52 to 28. Excuse me, 52 to 24. Won by 28 points. The game was never really that close. They were trading scores early on. Texas A&M throws a pick six, and it was blood in the water. And Alabama absolutely destroyed them after that. Um, so. Alabama, again, looks like the Crimson Tide we've come to expect. They're just throwing bombs over the top with Mac Jones. They're back to doing the same stuff they were doing back all the way back when Lane Kiffin was their OC, and they had Blake Sims at quarterback where they would just throw bombs to Mari Cooper. They've got a bunch of track kids and Mechie and Jalen Waddell and Don, Devontae Smith, and they just load up and throw post routes and go routes, and you can't stop them because they have a really good scheme to go with it. So that was an interesting result. Also, you had Kyle Trask put on another dominant performance. Kyle Pitts and Kyle Trask are just absolutely shredding defenses. 
that's going to be a really good test of Georgia's defensive uh, prowess because Kyle Pitts is a is a matchup nightmare. Um, Kyle Trask is playing really, really well. They've really adjusted the scheme well to him, and that is going to be one of the two best offenses that UJ sees this year between Florida and Alabama. Probably the only two teams that are going to be able to score in the 20s and maybe even the 30s on UGA. So that'll be a great matchup to see that Florida looks like their offense is absolutely 100% for real. And one more story around the SEC was Mississippi State uh, falling to Arkansas, breaking Arkansas's 20-game losing streak in the SEC. So after knocking off the defending national champs, the, the Mississippi State Bulldogs fall to Arkansas. And if that's not the most Mike Leach thing to do, I don't know what is. So that was another surprising result. Now, um, the one other thing I have to mention is that this was the week that the Big 12 imploded. So you already had Oklahoma getting you already had Oklahoma giving away their one loss of the year last week to Kansas State with a game where they had three turnovers from Spencer Rattler. Probably could have pulled the game out late. And then they come back this week and get stunned again by Iowa State. They lose 37 to 30, throw a pick in the end zone at the end of the game going for the game tying score. This is their second loss in the last four years to Iowa State. They lost in 2017, beat them in 18, beat them in 19 by a single point after picking off a two-point conversion that would have won the game for Iowa State. So Iowa State and that Cyclone dime they run, which is a really crazy version of the the, uh, dime defense they run with three safeties, it was literally built to handle teams like Oklahoma. And for whatever reason, they give Oklahoma fits. And Brock Purdy was good. Oklahoma continues to turn the ball over and not be able to stop other teams, which has been the story of your last two games. And, you know, you get people saying things like, you know, well, is the formula for Lincoln Riley not working anymore? I think that's probably a bit too much. I mean, considering the guy has lost, I think, six games in three years coming into this season. So I think that's probably a bit premature. And uh, as, a result of, as a result of this loss to Iowa State, Oklahoma's falling out of the rankings for the first time, and I can't remember how long. Um, and then Texas lost TCU, who – has been a nemesis for them since TCU into the Big 12. Texas is two and seven against them, so it's not shocking that Texas lost them. But Texas is a lot more talented team than TCU. These are the kind of losses that have people scratching their heads and saying, "Is Tom Herman really the guy here in Texas?" And the most heartbreaking part was Texas threw a long pass through running back, gets tackled inside the 10 yard line, then running the ball trying to get it in the end zone. He coughs it up. They fumble at the three yard line, down 31. Down 33 to 31, and all, when all they have to do is line up and kick a field goal, and they're running the ball trying to get a touchdown, which is what you should do, and they fumble and end up losing the game. So the reason I bring that up is because that has essentially eliminated the Big 12 from playoff contention because Texas has to go through the rest of their schedule undefeated now, which would include beating Oklahoma, uh, beating I, uh, Oklahoma State. I just I don't know if I see that happening, an undefeated them being a one-loss team. So now you're looking at the Big 12 and, you know, you're hoping, I guess, Iowa State wins out and becomes your one-loss conference champion. That's your best bet to getting in the playoff. And I just I just don't know if that's going to happen. So as much as people hate this, I hope you realize that the SEC has the door open to get in two teams. Because of the Pac-12 just releasing their seven-game schedule, a Pac-12 champion is going to have to be undefeated. And I don't know that an undefeated 7-0 and Pac-12 champion is getting in over a 9-1 SEC team that lost the SEC championship or even an 8-2 SEC team that lost the SEC championship or won the SEC championship. So I hate to say this. I told you at the beginning of the year, SEC's probably getting two teams in. With the Big 12 basically taking themselves out of it this weekend, 
that looks like an even more likely scenario. So if you assume Clemson, you assume Ohio State out of the Big Ten, I'm telling you the other two spots, they're going to SEC teams. So start shaking your fist now. Pivoting from that, I uh, want to talk a little bit about our Atlanta Falcons. And uh, the, the Falcons had a hard loss in Monday Night Football going down 30-16. to 16, And truthfully, this wasn't a fair fight. The Falcons were without both starting safeties and a starting corner in Darquez Denard, another starting corner in A.J. Terrell. And by the time the game was over, they had lost their number three safety, who is also a starter in DeMonte Casey with a Achilles injury. And this year's draft pick, who's supposed to be their future safety, Jalen Hawkins, who left the game in the second half also. So they were literally playing practice squad players against Aaron Rodgers. And, well, that went like you would think it went. So you're talking about the Falcons finished the game without six other top seven defensive backs, no Tech McKinley. I mean, it wasn't a fair fight. And we realized the Green Bay Packers only punted once in this game. It was with, like, under two minutes left. It kind of tells you all you need to know about this contest. The Packers, of course, won 30-16. The, the Falcons honestly never really came close to stopping the Packers other than the one goal line stand, which you could argue was still a touchdown because you could argue the Packers scored in third down. But the Falcons got a goal line stand early in the first half and then went on a 10-minute drive that kept the ball away from the Packers for a long period of time, ended in a field goal that made it 73. And if not for the Falcons taking that 10-minute possession, this is probably a 50-point game for the Packers. The Falcons just looked absolutely clueless on defense. There was one play in the fourth quarter where it's a fourth and two, and you look, and there are three receivers with no one within 20 yards of all three of them. Aaron Rodgers picks one to throw the ball to. And it's like, I didn't know this stuff happened in the NFL. And so I really do feel like, you know, with all the injuries, and the Packers had injuries too. They were missing their top two receivers. But when you're literally playing people off the street in your secondary in an NFL game against one of the all-time great quarterbacks of this generation – this is the result you get, and it's not surprising. It's not unexpected. You would have liked to see a little bit more fight from the offense. They only made it 16 points, and they they did some things well. But at the end of the day, this was a game coming into it when you saw the injuries. You know, it's at Lambeau. You expected to lose. And the thing is, this would be a loss that was excusable, and it wouldn't be damning for Dan Quinn had you not blown horrific leads the last two weeks. If this loss puts you at 2-2, two and two, no hurt, no foul. Okay, you get a few guys healthy. You're going into a five-game stretch where you have very, very winnable games. And you maybe get yourself into the bye week at, well, I don't know, five and four. Maybe even six and three. As a result, you're just praying you can win four out of the next five and go into the bye week at four and five before you probably lose to the Saints coming out of the bye and you're at four and six. So I still do believe that this team has a good offense, a good enough offense to maybe win seven games. I don't know if that's good enough to get in the playoffs. I, st- I still stand by that. You didn't see that tonight. Um, Calvin Ridley was not good. Dropped an open pass early in the game. That would have been a big gain on the first drive. Didn't end up doing a whole lot statistically. Ended up with five targets and zero catches. I mean, it was not a good night for Calvin Ridley. Julio played in the first half. Four catches for 32 yards. Didn't play at all in the second half. Our leading receiver on the day was Alameda Zacchaeus, who got majority of his yards in garbage time when the Packers were up by two scores, letting Atlanta throw underneath routes down the field to see if they could make the game interesting. And I think if you're a Falcons fan, the loss you understand, what's so disheartening is just the fact that, I mean, it was like Aaron Rodgers was playing 7-on-7. The Falcons' pass rush was non-existent again. Rodgers is hard to sack anyway, but the Falcons' pass rush was non-existent. We only had one quarterback hit after having, I think, something like 14 in the first two games. We we had one sack. I just – 
it was a frustrating night to watch the ease with which the Packers just picked us apart. And it wasn't the best night for Matt Ryan. He was 28 of 39 for 285 yards. But again, a lot of those are just garbage time yards. We had no vertical passing game. The Packers really forced him to throw to a lot of underneath routes. And the run game was actually a lot better than the statistics show. Um, you know, Todd Gurley ended up with 16 carries for 57 yards and two touchdowns. But if you watch the game, he had he had two big negative plays that really cut into his average. It was really more like a 7 yard night for him. Plays that were poorly blocked. They weren't his own. It weren't his fault. And if you watch the game, Todd Gurley was actually very very effective running the ball. So he was he was a solid four yards, four yards, five, six, seven. No big chunk plays, but. I feel like the 78-yard rush that the Falcons had is a little misleading because when they were eight, when the game was still close enough for them to run the ball, they were effective running the ball, although they weren't spectacular. And Gurley was really good in the red zone like he always is. You saw him breaking tackles again, which is something I haven't seen a lot of him do this year, and that was encouraging to see. But overall, the Falcons got dominated from kickoff to final whistle. They were terrible on defense, and... You just hope that they can get healthy and put some sort, some semblance of a competent defense on the field. Because Aaron Rodgers went 27 of 33 for 327 yards, four touchdowns. And I don't think he broke a sweat. His QBR was 96.9. His quarterback rating was, his quarterback rating was 147.5. 158 is a perfect rating. He basically was perfect. And it was just discouraging to see that. So hopefully the Falcons can rebound and get on the right track against Carolina because, yes, this is a rapidly sinking ship. And I know some people feel like getting starters back is kind of like rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic. But I still do believe that this team can be competitive. And, you know, you have people calling for Dan Quinn to be fired, which my response is, if you didn't fire him after he blew horribly, if he had horrible blown leads in the last two weeks in games they should have won, why would you fire him in a game where they were outmatched and really had no chance to win? That, to me, makes no sense. So, if you were going to fire Dan Quinn, it should have been after the last two games, not after this one. I mean, they had very little chance in this game, realistically. They were outmatched. They were a practice squad defense, back in the back end at least, playing against, yes, a banged-up Packers team, but a Packers team that still had Aaron Rodgers and three good running backs. So that was plenty on this night. And I have to say, before we change subjects, that this wasn't all bad for the Falcons. Deion Jones played well for the most part. Foyer. Aluakon I thought was really good. Kendall Sheffield looked really good being back out there corner at the outside corner. He needs to stay on the field. So it really wasn't all bad. But, again, the Falcons were outmatched here. This was a game they didn't really have a realistic chance of winning because they weren't going to stop the, pa- the Packers' offense to what they were putting out there in the secondary. Your hope was that they would have a shot in a shootout, but Julio went down. They couldn't hit long plays. Ridley didn't play well, and the result was what you got. A whole-home night on, a whole-home night on offense and just a disaster on defense. So, with that said, let's pivot to the team in the city that's giving us all hope for the future, and that is our beloved Atlanta Braves. So, the Braves had one of the most un-Braves-like wins last week in that extra-inning marathon win in the first round over the Cincinnati Reds. And any Braves fan that watched that game knows what I'm talking about when I say you were just waiting for the bottom to fall out. You're waiting for the sky to fall and for us to be sitting there playing Back-to-back elimination games, waiting for another infield flyer rule like in 2013 or a 10-run first inning like 2019 and us to be going home disappointed yet again. We were waiting for it as Braves fans, and they didn't do it. They made the plays. They got the hits. They got out of multiple jams in that that game one against the Reds, 
and then roasted the Reds at the end of game two and didn't even make it dramatic. That's so unlike our Braves. And maybe, just maybe, that's a sign that this, that this Braves team is going to reward us with a good postseason. I'm not even talking about a World Series win. I'm just talking about a postseason in which they win the series they're supposed to win and maybe give it to the Dodgers in a six- or seven-game series that makes us proud of them. That's all we're asking. That's all we're asking. So after that sweep of the Reds, which was really impressive sweep, which we got two great starting pitching performances by uh, Ian Anderson and Max Fried, and the Reds got equally brilliant performances out of their starters and Trevor Bauer, golly, he is by far the best pitcher in the National League. I don't even think it's close. And I love Max Fried, but Bauer's a different animal, man. I just, golly, that guy's stuff's unhittable sometimes. But uh, I was really impressed with him. And here we go, moving on into the division round against the Marlins, which is the matchup you wanted. You did not want to have to face you, Darvish, in that second round if you could avoid it because that could be two games where your lineup is shut down. Even in going against Max Freed, you just never know. So we got the matchup we wanted with the Marlins, who is a team that we put 29 runs on about a month ago. And for the season, the Braves went 6-4 and four against the Marlins, averaging 6.8 runs per game and only allowing 4.4. But – with the caveat that they did have a 29-run game thrown in there. So that does skew the numbers slightly. And the Marlins are a great Cinderella story, but they are nowhere near as good as the Braves, and they're nowhere near as good as the Cubs. The Cubs are a lot better team than, than the Marlins on paper. And so that's the matchup you wanted. And the Braves just finished a Game 1 win today in which they made a great comeback, scored late, which is what the Braves always do. If the Braves are within one or two runs, you get to the 6th or 7th inning, you feel good because you know they're about to wear out any bullpen that you trot out there. You're not shutting the Braves' offense down for three or four innings at the end of a game very often. And so when that game got the late innings and, you know, the Braves are down, I think it was four to three, you just knew it was a matter of time until they started swinging the bats and they put together that big seventh inning, uh, got the lead back, and never let it go. And it was uh, it was they did it in spite of Max Fried not having the best start. But to me, you know, the story of this game, without going through all the stats and whatnot, yeah, we hit some home runs. Dansby was clutch. Travis Arnaud was clutch. Ronald Acuna Jr. to me is the story. And Acuna Jr., our budding star, starts the game off in the bottom of the first with a rocket shot home run. Pimps it. Flips his bat, walks on the first baseline, and then catches a 97-mile-per-hour fastball inside on the next at-bat the third inning. Probably incidental. Maybe not. All I know is after that, several Braves players said it woke him up. And the best part, Ronald Akinga Jr. takes Twitter to absolutely troll the Miami Marlins, saying, and I quote, they have to hit me because they don't get me out with three shh emojis. And then the best one is his Instagram, which shows him mid-bat flip, Walking down the first baseline, pimping his first inning home runs with the caption, I'd like to take this time to apologize to absolutely nobody. I cannot tell you how much I love this. When is the last time we had a brash, I won't even say brash, a confident, borderline cocky, bad to the bone star here in Atlanta? Trey Young is probably on his way there, but Trey Young hasn't produced in the playoffs. Ronald King Jr. has actually been on successful teams. But he's good. He knows he's good. He knows that you know he's good, and he don't care what you think about him. I love this. This is the kind of athlete Atlanta has not had since, what, Deion Sanders? I mean, like, we always get the schoolboy athletes like Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, the guys that, you know, drink milk and take their vitamins. You know, you have 
you had um, Al Horford and Paul Millsap, your stars for the Hawks. I mean, like Joe Johnson, like the most boring professional basketball players that are actually good that you can think of. And, you know, the last guy that we had that was good like this was Mike Vick. Mike Vick wasn't really a talker. And so you see a guy that puts this out there and he says, hey, I'm good. I know I'm good. I don't care if you like it. Oh, man, I'm loving this. So looking ahead to the Braves and the rest of the series, my prediction for the series was the Braves in uh, five games. I, I really think that if they got – and I know, of course, I'm making a prediction after the series started, but I really do think that if the Braves can win the Ian Anderson start, it's going to be a five-game series. If they don't win that start, it could go longer. I don't think it goes seven. I just don't see the Marlins pitching, shutting down this lineup for three games. I think just the Braves are going to score four or five runs every game and sometimes more. And I don't think that lineup for the Marlins is going to get five or six on most nights. I know they got five tonight um, with a bad start from Max Freed. But I just think the Braves are a lot better team. And I'm going to predict the Braves in five in this series and then getting ready to play the Dodgers. And one last thing that I want to make as a note about this Braves postseason, and this was a sign to me from the very beginning this postseason was going to be different, was the construction of the postseason roster. Made a post on our Title Run Facebook page asking you who you would put in the roster and who you wouldn't. And a bunch of you basically said, I know who I'd put in the roster, but I know at the end of the day, somehow Brian Snicker is going to find a way to put Luke Jackson and Ender and CRT on this postseason roster, knowing that he shouldn't, knowing that neither of them gives the team a good chance to win. But because Brian Snicker is loyal and he's a Bobby Cox disciple, and that's the Braves' way, we're going to carry these guys on our roster even though they don't help us win. And lo and behold, no Luke Jackson in the first round, no Ender Inciarte. And that, to me, was a sign that, hey, this isn't about loyalty. This isn't about not hurting people's feelings. This is about winning. And the fact that they picked Christian Pache, who they had not groomed for the role of being the late-inning defensive replacement or pinch runner, they picked him over Ender Inciarte, says they were thinking with their brains and not their hearts. And they took... Matzik and O'Day over Luke Jackson, it's the right choice. I mean, it's the right choice. And they're carrying 15 pitchers in this second round matchup against the Marlins because you do need extra pitchers with the extra games. You know, if you get another 13-inning game, you're going to burn through your bullpen and, you know, you need more arms. So they took the 15 pitchers and the 13 position players, only brought two catchers into this second round series. Carried Charlie Culberson, which I thought was an interesting decision because, you know, with the DH, you don't really pinch hit. But I'm assuming they're carrying Culberson in case they need an emergency catcher if something happens. But all in all, I love this roster. I love what I'm seeing out of the Braves. And I legitimately think that this Braves offense is going to carry them all the way to the NLCS. And who knows? Maybe beyond. All right, so that's it for today. We've covered a lot. I know that's uh, we're a couple days late on this podcast. I really wanted to get the Falcons wrap-up in there. I hope this wasn't completely all over the place as we're recording this Tuesday night. But uh, this is Dave Bethay for the Title Run Podcast. That's it for today. Thank you for listening.